Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're getting ready for Shavuos, the great holiday of the receiving of the Torah. It's a... It's an amazing thing. The Torah never stops being given. And there's a lot of things around that in terms of the way the calendar is organized and in terms of Jewish law that all accommodate this one idea that the Torah never stops being given. I heard in the name of Rav Soloveitchik, what you want to be able to do is take an idea, a philosophical idea, and to show where it exists in the daily halacha, in Jewish law itself. Because you want to show how something comes from the highest, highest realms and how it manifests itself in this world, lamaisa, as we say, in action. So I'm going to give you a few examples of that. So the first is, according to the Talmud, the Torah was actually given the seventh day of Sivan. Now, that is really fascinating since we celebrate the giving of the Torah on the sixth day of Sivan. In other words, we don't celebrate the holiday on the day that it happened. Here's another example. Every single holiday in the Torah has a day and a month associated with it. So for instance, Yom Kippur is on the 10th day of the 7th month. Another example, we celebrate Pesach on the 15th day of the 1st month except for the giving of the Torah. It says, count 50 days from the time you left Egypt. It doesn't tell you the date. Isn't that interesting? So now we've got two oddities. One, that it seems like we're not celebrating the giving of the Torah on the day that it was received. Two, that no date is actually given for when we're supposed to celebrate it. Here's another example in Jewish law, which is if I make a blessing on an apple, okay? Let's say, pick up an apple, then I take a bite of the apple. If I then leave the house, do some shopping, go to work, come back at the end of the day, and I pick up that same apple that I made a blessing over. I didn't finish it the first time. There it is, my half-eaten apple. Now you could say, well, I've already said a blessing over it. So I don't have to say a blessing over it again, but that's not Jewish law. Jewish law is that you have made what's called a hefsik, a separation between the time that you made the blessing And so you'd have to make a second blessing on the same apple. Okay? In fact, if you were to take that same apple that you made a blessing over in the morning in your house, and then you were to just stick it in your lunchbox, and then drive to work, and then take out that apple again, you would still have to make a second blessing on the same apple, because you've changed locations. Now let's compare that to Torah study. One of the first things that we do when we wake up in the morning is we make a blessing over the Torah. And we say a couple of small passages. That's like the bite of the apple after the blessing. But 
Let's say I had a Torah class at the end of my workday. Do I make another blessing over studying Torah? So clearly, if it were an apple, you would make another blessing since we have a hefsik. We have a separation from the time that I made my initial blessing and now all the way at the end of the day when I'm studying Torah again. So clearly, according to the way we normally learn out how we make bruchas, we should make a second blessing on Torah study at the end of the day, and we don't. We do not. That one blessing that we say in the morning keeps us going the entire day. And why? And the answer is because the entire world is made out of Torah, and every single interaction that we have, whether it's in the office or in the supermarket, is all Torah. It's all Torah. We never stop interacting with the Torah. So what might appear to be a hefsek, a separation, because you're not in front of an open book anymore, the world is the open book. See, this is one of the breakthroughs that every single person has to make if they want to take God seriously and take their lives seriously and take Torah seriously, which is that people think that I'm just learning Torah when I have a book open in front of me. The world is the open book. And each person is a letter in the Torah, which means that when you're interacting with people, you are interacting with Torah. And God is telling stories through people and teaching you through the events of your life and the events of the day. It never stops being Torah. So all of these ideas combine to show you that the Torah is being given anew every single moment. It never stops. And that's why we don't want to pin down the giving of the Torah on a date like all the other holidays. That's why even though it very probably was given on the 7th of Sivan, we celebrated on the 6th of Sivan, that's why we don't want to actually give a calendar date. We just say 50 days later because we don't want to pin down the Torah like it's a thing. The Torah is not an apple. The Torah is way bigger than that. It is the substance of reality itself. So at Mount Sinai, something amazing happened. The Jewish people came together like one person with one heart. Ish echad velevachad. One person with one heart. I want to make a little bit of a campaign right now, which is that anyone who talks about the giving of the Torah should make sure to include this piece of information, that the Jewish people came together as one, and then we became a vessel for divine revelation. In other words, that unity that existed among the Jewish people is not just a side note, just a happenstance, just, you know, kind of like you're driving through some neighborhood and you point out, oh, that's where the Beatles played in 1965. By the way, I was just in Scotland, and the tour guide said, oh, and by the way, that's where the Beatles played. And so anyway, it's not just like, oh, yeah, and we came together as one before the Torah was given at Mount Sinai. That's a narrative that's being taught to us. Vino, 
Before he dies, he wants to reveal the date when Mashiach is going to come. And he tells his children, gather round. And then he doesn't tell them the date. The prophecy is taken away from him. So the Ishmitzer says, he did tell them. He said, gather round. When you gather together as one, Mashiach will come. He gave them the essential piece of information. Again, this is not just a nice of our Torah that, oh, and then the people, Jewish people came together as one, and then God gave the Torah. No, the Jewish people came together as one, and then God gave the Torah. That's one thought. That's one thought. Okay. Now, I got a, an understanding into this that I never got before today during Hallel. We had a musical Hallel here. And this kind of, well, I'm still absorbing this thought, but this is, for me, a game changer. What does it mean that we came together as one? So I don't know that I consciously had this thought that I'm about to tell you, which I'm going to revise in a second. But in the back of my mind, I think that I always thought we came together as one, meaning to say that we all became perfect. Again, I don't think I ever consciously would have put it in those words. But I think that was my working assumption. Because how else could we have come together as one unless we had all achieved perfection? But a new understanding, and I think a much more sophisticated understanding, in my opinion, came to me, and it's the following. What does it mean we came together as one? We reached this ability to accept each other's imperfections. That's what it means. We were all finally able to accept each other as we are. And so the challenge and the, and the track of each of us individually is that each one of us in our own lives has to strive for perfection. Each one of us has to strive for perfection while simultaneously accepting each other's imperfections. That's the idea. In other words, don't think that accepting each other's imperfections lets you off the hook from striving for perfection yourself. But an aspect of your striving perfect for perfection is accepting other people's imperfections. And that we've got to get better at. Because people, like, can you imagine, <clears throat> think of the following. You're watching a race. And it seems like those people toward the front are winning. The people in the middle, they've got a chance, I guess, of catching up. And the people at the end, well, good luck. I don't know that they're going to make it necessarily. Now, what if I were to tell you that the people in the front actually started running long before the people in the back? <laughs> that everyone started the race at a completely different time? Well, now evaluating who's in front is going to be like incredibly complicated. 
Because they're not racing against each other, they're racing against the clock. And the clock starts when each of them starts running. So you look at this pack of runners and you don't know who started when. And so who's winning? I don't know who's winning. That's life. Because every single person is at a different point in their spiritual journey. And the problem is, we look at where we're at in our spiritual journey, and we try to look at everyone else and say, they should be at this point in their spiritual journey, since I'm here in my spiritual journey. But what if they started way after you started? You've had the benefit of all these mistakes and all of these experiences and all of these learning opportunities, and they haven't. And now you're holding them to the same level as yourself after you've had the opportunity to make a thousand mistakes and they haven't had the chance to make a thousand mistakes yet. So it's completely unfair. So you don't know where another person is at and you don't even know when they started. Well, you say, well, wait a second. That other person is way older than me. Well, a lot of times that realization that there's more to this world and more that's expected of each of us and that God gave us his Torah in order to keep his Torah. I mean, that was an incredible turning point in my life as thunderously obvious as this is going to sound, what I'm about to tell you absolutely changed my life. When I was growing up, I grew up in a, a reformed family. It wasn't, you know, quote unquote religious, meaning to say we didn't keep Shabbos or kosher or things like this, but it was very Jewish, very positive, very Jewish. And I remember in that mindset, not really knowing much about anything at all, I asked my sister, I think I was, I don't know, maybe 13, I don't know. I asked my sister, I said, what's the difference between reform, conservative, and orthodox? I didn't know. And my sister said, well, the orthodox believe that God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai. And I said, that's me. And I didn't want to hear the rest. I wasn't interested in hearing the other categories. I was like, I already, I already checked my box. So I always believed, for whatever reason, that God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai. But then, cut to me, age 24, living in a house with a bunch of comedy writers in the Hollywood Hills. We called it the Institute of Higher Leisure, right? It's like a giant party house. It was literally a machete on the kitchen table that one of the guys who lived in the house used to cut through the forest of Belize while he was like, I don't know what he was doing there exactly. But anyway, it was a crazy house. And I remember lying on my bed at the Institute of Higher Leisure <laughs> and thinking the following, and this was my life-changing realization. I thought, if God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai, which I believed, that means he wants us to keep it. <laughs> or I think I may have made it even more pointed. That means I have to keep it. Now, like I say, when you hear that, that does not sound like, you know, E equals MC squared. 
But believe me, it hit me like E equals MC squared. I remember thinking, I, I kind of just imagined this conversation, you know, which is a, a journalist who's kind of like researching the fact that they're Holocaust deniers. And, you know, this is still during the lifetime of people who have, you know, physical evidence on their bodies, you know, tattoos that they were in Auschwitz. The, the chutzpah, the, the, the beyond the chutzpah, the riches, the wickedness of the people who seek to deny that which is thoroughly documented. And so this journalist who's like doing a piece on Holocaust deniers goes up to someone who survived the Holocaust because he wants to interview that person. And in this conversation that took place in my mind, the survivor tells the journalist, you're as bad as they are. And the journalist is like outraged. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? And the survivor says to him, you deny that God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai. You know, in today's day and age, we're getting better and better and better at forging documents. Better and better at fabricating historiosity. You've got deep fake videos where you can actually, it's not just photoshopping things, you can now actually show video of historical events that never happened. <laughs> right, and as AI becomes more advanced, it's only going to get better. And then as virtual reality, VR, gets more advanced, people are going to be living literally inside their own fantasies and aren't going to know the difference between what's real and what's not real anymore. In other words, right now we're in the debate between what's true and what's not true, what's a fact and what's not a fact. But it's about to go up a a quantum level where people are going to debate what's real and what's not real as virtual reality becomes more in comprehensive. So the underpinnings of reality itself are becoming more and more and more tenuous. And yet the existence of the Jewish people is the greatest testimony that this event took place. Because we're the children of 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 the children, of the children who actually were at Mount Sinai. It's awesome. If someone says to you, what's the proof that God gave the Torah at Mount Sinai? You know what the answer is? You're the proof. <laughs> you, you yourself are the proof. Like, you know, just patch yourself. <laughs> You're the proof. <laughs> I'll tell you something. I, I gave a talk yesterday and someone came up to me and said, why does God make evil people? And I said, God doesn't make evil people. It says in the Talmud, everything is in the hands of heaven except the fear, the awe of heaven. In other words, we all have free choice. Even if you understand the Jewish concept of mazel, 
which is that certain contours of a person's circumstances are shaped before they're born. And why? So Rav Dessler says, so that God maximizes your ability to fix what you need to fix in this world. In other words, it's not just that some people get lucky. Wow, their mazel, their destiny is to be rich. So they got lucky. No, no, no. They need that in order to fix their soul. Some people get other circumstances. They need that to fix their soul. God custom makes every single person's life circumstances to maximize their ability to fix their soul during this lifetime. Except he leaves it up to each individual, no matter how shaped a person's life circumstances are. And by the way, those can be changed. You can change your mazel through an extraordinary act or a very great mitzvah. You're able to, ex to change your mazel and through great prayer you can do it if you choose to. But whether you're going to be righteous or wicked is in your hands. Every single person's hands, whether you're righteous or whether you're wicked, is in your hands alone. So with that in mind, God doesn't make wicked people. So let's think about this for a moment. So she says back to me, what about Hitler? So... The thing is, through our own actions, we bring either positive things into the world or negative things, positive decrees or negative decrees. And then when Hashem wants to bring a negative decree, we have another principle from the Talmud, which is God brings good things through good people and bad things through bad people. Which means that this decree, for whatever reason, we don't know the reason why the Holocaust came down. We don't know the reason. But for whatever the reason was, God looked at who is the person in the world right now who through their own choices, through their own horrific choices, is going to be the person who I bring this through. Enter Hitler. He brought that on himself through the choices that he made. So let's just cleanse our soul palates for a moment. What about Moshe Rabbeinu? Moshe gets selected to receive the Torah on the top of Mount Sinai. God brings heaven down to earth and Moshe enters at the top of Mount Sinai into a portal into heaven. That was through the choices he made. Right? Moshe himself said, why didn't you give it through Aaron? Right? In the Talmud, he's recorded as saying, why didn't you give it through Rabbi Akiva? God had other choices. But Moshe elevated himself above everyone through the choices that he made. You know, one of the Midrashim that talks about Moshe's choices and just how extraordinary a person he was, like King David and like Yaakov Avinu, like Jacob, he was a shepherd. Amazing that the, the greatest leaders of the Jewish people were shepherds. And one of his sheep, one of Moshe's sheep, the Medrash records, ran off from the pack. And he found some water. And Moshe said, 
to this sheep, had I known that you were so thirsty, I would have carried you there. So that endless compassion for all of God's creatures, for all of God's creatures, that was one element. But a heart that knew no bounds, right? One of the biggest tests that was given to the Jewish people it says that God offered the Torah. The Medr says that God offered the Torah to other peoples before he offered it to us. One nation says, don't kill. You crazy? Another nation says, don't steal. Nothing doing. What was the test that the Jewish people were given? Right? We like to cut to the chase. And we said, Nasev and Ishma will We'll do and we'll hear. In other words, you don't even have to tell us what's in the Torah, God. We know that you're good and whatever you want from us is going to be good. We're going to do it. Just, just, just know we're going to do it. And then we'll get the details later. And then God said, who, who taught them the secret of the angels? Right? To be so on board with God. That's really the essence of making his will your will. Or making your will his will. Right? Okay. But he did give us a test. If you kind of learn it out a little bit more. Which is he put a boundary around the mountain. And he said, you can get close, but you can't touch the mountain. If you touch the mountain, you're going to die. But you can get close. And so what was the test? Are the Jewish people willing to go down this road where we'll get very close, but we'll never ultimately know? Are we willing to serve God even at the price of our own lives? Where we'll never ultimately, ultimately know, at least during this lifetime and in this world. That's the boundary around the mountain. Is our love for God so complete that the journey itself, that the love itself, that the knowledge that he's good and that he wants perfection from us and he's given us the roadmap to do it through the mitzvahs of the Torah, is that enough without having all of the answers? You know, it's another perspective on the great Kutzker Rebbe's Torah. He says, I would never worship a God I understood. Right? Because if you completely understand God, then you're also God. So then what do you need God for? An aspect of God being God is that you will never completely understand him. That was one of the preconditions of getting the Torah. Respecting that there was a boundary around the mountain. And so when I tell you that Moshe's love was absolutely boundless... It was boundless. But how does boundlessness manifest itself in our lives and in this world? Well, the Torah is broken down into two categories. Mitzvahs ase and mitzvahs lotase. The category of things that require doing and the category of things as hard as it is that require refraining. It's all doing. But a lot of the doing is stopping yourself from doing. 
So it's all doing. But there's actually doing and the stopping yourself from doing. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if God is the ultimate center, not just the center, but he saturates all reality. Do you know what's amazing around, if you think of a circle and a point in the middle, ideally that's our life. Our life is a circle and God is the point in the middle of the circle. But do you know what a circle has to do to become a circle? It has to break itself every step of the way. Right? Because it wants to be a straight line. (laughs) You go with your momentum. Why are you doing this thing that you know you're not supposed to do? Because I've been doing it my whole life. What do you want from me? We have this momentum. But you know what a circle does? A circle is breaking that straight line every single moment. Or as the Ischwitzer says, every person has to ask themselves, what does God want from me this moment? If you ask yourself, what does God want from me this moment, you're able to break yourself in the moment and you're not functioning on momentum anymore. You're revolving around God. With that in mind, one of the deepest Torahs I I ever heard was from Reb Shlomo. He said in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, he says, do you know why we put tzitzis on the corner of our garments? By the way, just so you know, I've had this Ishbitzer Torah in mind the entire time I've been talking about this circle. But now let's actually hear what he says. Because what happens when you make a corner? Because we have, remember, what are the tzitzis all about? You're supposed to look at them and remember to do the mitzvahs. And the word tzitzit adds up to 613, okay? Because there's eight strings and five knots, that adds up to 13, and the word tzitzis adds up to 600, so that's 613. Okay. So you look at the tzitzis, you remember to do the mitzvahs. You remember. But we have it on the corner of the garment. Why the corner? Because the Ishbitzer says, when you make a corner, that means you left the circle. <laughs> Did you hear that? In other words, the, the complete perfected life is when God, so to speak, is in the center of the circle and you're revolving around that center point, all of your actions. But when you allow momentum to take over, and you lose mindfulness, then you just continue in the same direction that you were going before, and at that moment you make a corner, because you leave the circle. And that's why you need sitsis on the corner to remember to do the mitzvahs and come back. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible, right? I had a question, at least in the moment, that was answered for me, during the davening, just a, a thought came to me. And I've had this question for at least 20 years. So I was very happy to get this, this, this new thought, and I want to share it with you. So when Hashem eulogizes Moshe Rabbeinu, he gives him a two-word eulogy. He calls Moshe an Evid Hashem. That means a servant of God. 
again, just picture that circle with the dot in the middle, right? Moshe was that amazing, amazing person that just, just didn't, didn't break into corners, right? That's what it means to be an Evid Hashem, right? He just stayed conscious in terms of serving God his entire life, a servant of God. Now, I saw in the Medrash that different people, great, great figures in world history, Jewish history, have referred to themselves as Evid Hashem, servants of God, and God went, nah, not exactly. <laughs> so all of a sudden you realize, wow, Evid Hashem, that's like, that's like a golden category. Like if you want to be an Evid Hashem, even great people have tried to refer to themselves in that way, and God's like, nothing to it. So it's not so simple to be called that. With that in mind, with that in mind, when we open up the ark to take out the Torah, to read the Torah, we refer to ourselves, we say the following words. I am a servant of HaKodesh Baruch Hu. <laughs> and I prostrate, I prostrate myself before him and before the glory of his glory. Wait a second, let me read that again. I am a servant of HaKodesh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed is he, and I prostrate myself before him and before the glory of his Torah at all times. Who gives us the chutzpah to, to say that? How do we all of a sudden get the merit to, to, to claim like the highest title and put it on ourselves? That's my question. I've had that question for, I can actually honestly say decades. So here's my answer. First, we're going to start with another question because we're Jews. <laughs> How can we not? There seems to be a big redundancy right before we declare ourselves to be servants of God. We say that everything is in your hands, God. I'll read it to you. It is you who, can, it is you who nourishes all and sustains all. You control everything. That sounds pretty all-encompassing, doesn't it? And then we add the next phrase, which is curious, because we just said God controls absolutely everything. Then the next words are, it is you who controls kings and kingship is yours. Wait a second, I, just th I thought we just, didn't we cover that? <laughs> I thought we covered that. We just said God controls everything. What is this extra thing? God also controls kings. Aren't kings included in everything? So this was a big thought for me years ago when I realized that you can believe in God and you can say God runs everything, but then you're also saying, but my boss also runs everything. <laughs> and my wife or my husband or my kids or my neighbors, or they also run everything. In other words, every single person has this category of quote unquote kings in their life. So what we have to understand is not just as that God controls everything, but God also controls the kings in our life. And what I'm getting at is something even deeper, because the underpinnings for this thought actually go back to the giving of the Torah itself. 
and something that Rabbi Nachman teaches that 100% changed my life. Which is, it sounds like the first two commandments of the Torah are redundant. The first commandment is, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am God your God, which the Rambam says is the mitzvah to believe in God. So if you're being commanded in the first commandment to believe in God, what do you need the second commandment for, which tells you don't make other gods? In other words, if you've already been instructed to believe in God, why do you need a separate commandment, don't believe in other gods? And what Rabbi Nachman says is something life-changing. This really, really, I'm not throwing these words around when I say life-changing. This was life-changing for me. He says, and he's not saying this as a good thing, he's saying this as a bad thing. He says it's possible, not a good thing, that it's possible to believe in God and also to believe in other gods. And that was a dramatic thought. You mean you can believe in God and then also accept false powers? Yeah, that's how we're designed. That's how we're designed. So you have to make sure that not only do you believe in the right thing, but that you also don't believe in the wrong things. That's another active effort that you have to make. Or let's tie it back into this prayer that we say, which is from the Zohar, by the way. It's a section from the Zohar. It begins with the Hebrew words, Baruch Shemei, where we say, God, you control everything. And you also control kings. <laughs> Do you understand how that's a parallel thought? That's the same thought. God, I have to accept that you control everything, even those things that I've attributed power to. You control. It's not two separate categories. It's only one category and it's only one it's only you, God. Once I reach this level, now we're going to get to the answer to my first question. How are we able to call ourselves servants of God? This exalted category. So I'm going to read it to you in context. It is you who nourishes all and sustains all. You control everything. That's like the first commandment, right? Anochi Hashem I am God your God. It is you who controls kings, and kingship is yours. That's like the second commandment. Even those people and those forces in my life that I've attributed power to, God, you also control those things. I'm not believing in any false powers. And when you reach that level, listen to the next words. I am a servant of a Kodesh Baruch <laughs> You get to that place, that's the place where Moshe dwelt. At that moment, at that moment, when you've accepted God and knocked out all other false gods, things that you've given power to in your own life, at that moment, you reach this level. Each of us reaches this level of being a servant of God. And so, let's talk about matchmaking for a moment. One of the best pieces of advice that I ever heard in terms of like finding your soulmate, marrying your soulmate, right? Is you don't want to find someone who's exactly at the same level as you're at, religiously speaking. You know, there's a new show on Netflix now called Jewish Matchmaking. 
And there's some fantastic things in it. I was really impressed, you know? And there's like a really sad, this is a bit of a spoiler, I'm sorry, but there's a bit of a sad moment in one of the later episodes where there are two nice people that seem to be, you know, really kind of hitting it off and both seem to be very, very special people. They're both, you know, observant Jews. And she wants someone who's, you know, like, as we say, holding, you know, meaning to say is like really, you know, keeping, keeping the mitzvahs. And he's absolutely keeping the mitzvahs, but he doesn't go to Minyan three times a day. And she calls off the shidduch. She doesn't want to continue to date him for marriage at that point because he's not going to Minyan three times a day. Can I tell you something? As someone who, in a period of my life, was not going to Minyan three times a day, you can go to three Minyans a day. <laughs> it's not, oh, I really wanted someone with three arms. Yeah. Well, where am I going to get another arm? You're not. That's the problem. That's not the situation we're talking about here. If you like the person, the person can change and can improve. Right? The idea is that you just have that connection with the person and that you are committed to growing together in the same direction. It's okay if one person is quote-unquote more advanced than the other person. If the other person is equally committed to the same vision that they want to head toward. And then I heard it putting, put in a more stunning, sort of shocking way which is that two people can be at the exact same level, but this person started all the way up here and is going way down, and this person started down here and is going way up, and you just happen to be meeting at this point. And so it, you can meet someone and you go, thank God I found someone exactly at the same level as I am. Hold on tight, because the two of you are moving in opposite directions. So what you want is, even if it's not even, just moving in the same direction. So this gets to the power of yearning. Because when all is said and done, how is it possible that the Jews at Mount Sinai came together as one? How is it possible? So what I want to say right now again, just to go over this point, but now just to go just a little bit deeper. It's not that we all became perfect. It's that we reached a level where we were able to accept each other's imperfections. Within the striving of our own personal perfection, we reached the level of accepting other people's imperfections. But how did we do that? How did we do that? And I think because after the whole journey through the 10 plagues and the enslavement and the freedom and the crossing through the Red Sea, every single person, even amidst their own personal imperfection, was striving to be more and striving and yearning to be better. And so we looked at each other's yearning, not so much at each other's actions, 
but we looked at each other's yearning. And when we saw that, we saw the beauty in every single person. And so therefore, accepting them with their imperfections was not hard to do at all. And so, a great light came down into the world at Mount Sinai. And guess what? It didn't destroy the world. Now, that might sound like a non sequitur. What do you mean? A great light came down and I'm supposed to be surprised that it didn't destroy the world? So Rabbi Wolfson Shlita brings in the Amunah Setecha, I think from the Zohar, that Noach becomes reincarnate, reincarnated as Moshe. Right? So a lot of us are familiar with that. Many similarities. But this is the most striking similarity, and this isn't all that well known. In the generation of Noah, Hashem desired to bring down the Torah to the world. Now the Talmud tells you that water and Torah, when you see the Torah talking about water, it means Torah. So with that in mind, isn't it interesting that Moshe Rabbeinu was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, and the flood at the time of Noah, the great flood, was 40 days and 40 nights? Isn't it interesting that water is Torah? And of course we say, Kabbalistically speaking, it was the same soul in both instances. But what's the big difference? The big difference is that the people at the time of the flood were not together at all. In fact, the straw that broke the camel's back was that it says that we stole from each other less than a pruta's worth. That means basically less than a penny's worth. Now the reason why, I mean there was great licentiousness great wickedness going on in that generation. And yet the rabbis teach that because I went into a supermarket and I took a little hard candy out of a bin and stuck it in my pocket without paying for it, that's why the world was destroyed? Well, listen to the logic behind it because it's actually very compelling. The laws of the land were that anything like, you know, if you want to bring someone to small claims court, it has to be a certain amount of money. It can't be for a nickel. You can't bring someone into U.S. court because they owe you a nickel or they cheated you out of a nickel. It has to be a certain amount of money, a certain threshold. Well, a pruta was that threshold in those days. So when they were stealing less than a pruta's worth, what they were doing was showing that no system of justice is going to contain us. We are doing this to undermine any hava amina, any thought, any assertion that you can impose a system of laws and justice upon us and upon society. We defy that notion. And so we're going to steal in a way that we cannot be brought to court. 
So it's actually, you might say, wow, God is so strict. He destroyed the whole world because people were stealing like a penny's worth. No, it's the opposite. People were trying to show with great intention that justice does not apply to me and to my life. And once God sees that the entire system of justice is out the window, he goes, okay, well, we got to start the world over again, don't we? So the people were not together. And so God turned the light of Torah from its spiritual entity into its physical entity, from Torah to water, and he drowned the world. Because we as a people were not united and we didn't have the worthiness and the vessels to hold that great light. Now do you see when I tell you that a great light came down from heaven at Mount Sinai and it didn't destroy the world? That's not nothing. Because we see that such a thing happened before and it did destroy the world. Amazing. Amazing, 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 amazing. In other words, there was a level of unity and respect among the Jewish people and that is the vessel that allowed us to receive the Torah. Now, it says in the end of days that the redemption is going to happen basically one of two ways. Either through a tremendous war, what we call Gogu Magog, right? This apocalyptic war. Or it's going to be the Mashiach riding on a donkey, just heading toward Jerusalem. <laughs> Those are, you would agree, very stark differences. Now, to understand that, we have to understand a very important principle of Torah, which is that we have a rule. Every positive prophecy has to happen. No negative prophecy has to happen. If we're on the proper level and we do tshuva and we return, no negative prophecy has to come true. They're only there for us to be warned and to get our act together. That's all. But every negative prophecy can be averted. So how do we avert this prophecy of this all-out war, which, by the way, approximately 250 years ago, the Vilna Gon said that the final great war is going to happen and be over. The entirety of the war is going to happen in a few minutes. Now, if you think about that, that's nuts because he's saying this before, 250 years approximately before atomic weapons. He says this great apocalyptic war is going to be over in a few minutes. Like, all he knew was battles where you had to, like, round up soldiers and get, get on horses and arm your horses and travel to the battlefield. And I mean, war takes months, years. The greatest war ever is going to be over in a few moments? How do we revert that? Because it doesn't have to happen. And the way we avert it, and why is that war coming anyway? Because another great light is coming down. Another great light is going to come down. And this is what God had in mind from the beginning of creation, which is, remember, the world is still in the process of being created. 
Right? That's the answer to everyone's question. If there's a God, why is the world so messed up? The answer is because we're still in the middle. Right? The example that I always like to give is like, imagine you, go, you walk into the kitchen and there's a glass bowl with like brownie mix and a raw egg on top. And you dip your fingers in the raw egg and the brownie mix and you taste it and you go, these brownies are terrible. And the person says, they're not done yet. <laughs> the world's not finished yet. And there's going to be this great light which finishes what God had in mind all along from the very, very start. A world with no hunger, no war, no hatred. It's coming. But when that great light comes down, it needs a great vessel to hold it. If there's a great vessel to hold it, that's the unity of the Jewish people. If there's a great vessel to hold that great light, it's going to be a man riding on a donkey. If not, that great light is going to have to fit into a very tiny vessel. And you know what that's a recipe for? Destruction. Right? So, you know, we're waiting for God. And the joke is, God is waiting for us. <laughs> Okay, so, so the question is, how can we accept another person before we first accept ourselves? And, and how can we accept ourselves? I'm sure you can write books and books and books on this topic. So I, I'll just give you one answer, okay? So the idea is that God doesn't make mistakes. And the fact that God... You have a soul. What is your soul? Your soul is a piece of God. God put a piece of himself in you. That wasn't a mistake. That was a great sign of trust and faith and love in you. So you say, well, but I wasn't deserving of that. Well, who knows better? You are God. So clearly God knows better. So then that means that if God didn't make a mistake and he, he, he thinks that I'm worthy of such a thing, where am I going wrong in terms of my understanding of myself? Because now I have to challenge some, some very hardcore premises that I have probably ingrained and indoctrinated myself to believe in terms of my own unworthiness. So let me give you sort of like a, a fun visual for this, okay? Imagine you have like a handful of gems that are worth millions and millions of dollars. Now imagine you're like in like a really like terrible neighborhood. Like imagine the worst neighborhood in the world, right? Like, like somewhere, I don't know, in Iraq, like, like the, the bad part of Iraq, you know? So, okay, so it just, it's just like rubble and like really sketchy people, you know, like with grenades in their pockets, smoking cigarettes, you know, who knows doing what. And you walk up to one of these people and you say, listen, I've got this handful of jewels. It's worth millions and millions of dollars. Can you hold these for me? And I'm, I'm going to be leaving the country. I'll be back in like 70 or 80 years. <laughs> 
what are the odds that those jewels are going to be available to you when you come back? So I say 70 or 80 years because in the Psalms they say that's a lifetime. God puts this, these jewels inside of us because he trusts us. And then he says they're going to come back in 70 or 80 years to get it back. That's a high degree of trust. And he's not, you know, you know, you say, put your money where your mouth is. He's not just giving us something like, you know, here's like a, you know, a really primo lot in downtown Dallas. It's not, no, it's a piece of himself. It's a high stakes, high stakes. So that's a high degree of trust that God has in us. And we have to take that seriously. Because he knows that we can do it. So again, the idea of perfection is the road to perfection. The idea of perfection is the road to perfection. In other words, when inevitably you do the next thing wrong, when inevitably I do the next thing wrong, which is going to happen, right? At that moment, I say to myself, right, so, okay, so now how can I get it right the next time? In other words, when you make a mistake, that's not the end of the story. Like, we, we think that sometimes when we get disappointed or when we blow it, basically, it's like you get to the last page of a book, and then the book ends, and now the story's over, and then that's how it's written, and it's over. But that's not really what it is. That is not the visual or the model for life. There's always another chapter, and another chapter, and another chapter, and another chapter, and another opportunity. I'll tell you something unbelievable. The portion of the Torah where the Torah is given is called Parshas Yisro. Parshas Yisro, I mean, there's like one main event in that Parsha. That's like heaven coming down to earth, the Ten Commandments, which contains all of the mitzvahs of the Torah are given, right? Everything we've been talking about. You know, the, the most epic moment in the history of humanity. Or as Rabbi Adin Steinsold said, I, I love saying it so much, Thousands of years, people talked to God. At Mount Sinai, God spoke back, right? So, Parshas Yisro is where that event is, is, is described. But you know how it begins? It begins with Yisro, who is Moshe's fa father-in-law, arriving, and then it's like this whole kind of like event, and then he gives Moshe advice about establishing court systems and everything like that. And if you look at the Rashi there, it says something really interesting. And then eventually we get to the giving of the Torah. It's like, why not just start with the giving of the Torah? Like, we're ready. We're ready. And it's further complicated. You, and you can say, well, wait, maybe just narratively, just on a literary level, you know, we want to build up to that event. You know what I mean? Okay, but let's, let's be a little bit deeper because the sources tell us 
that the whole arrival of Yisro happened after the Torah was given. In other words, God deliberately put that section out of chronological order. Now, visualize this. Imagine Mount Sinai in your mind. Now imagine after Mount Sinai is the story of Yisro. God takes the story of Yisro after Mount Sinai, and he puts it before Mount Sinai. Why? And I want to give this answer to teach you that the Torah can take events that happen after the fact and change the reality before the fact. In other words, your future actions can change your past actions. Your future actions can change and repair your past actions. That's why the Torah is out of order there, to show you that with tshuva, with the observance of the Torah mitzvahs, you can change your past. You can make a new past. And so that's part of self-acceptance also. Not thinking that the mistakes that you made are the end of that story. And also understanding that the desire for perfection doesn't come. There's just the road to perfection. So when you hold yourself to this standard of perfection and now you get so upset that you made a mistake, there's a word for that, which is arrogance. Because there's a presumption that I was perfect and how could a perfect person do something wrong? That's arrogance. There's just striving for perfection in this life, not perfection. Okay, so you got it wrong, so fix it. Strive some more. And the way we begin, the way we begin is just by yearning. That's how we begin. Just wanting, wanting to be better. You just begin by really wanting to be better. And if you really commit to that, you are going to radiate that. And then another person is going to see that you're radiating the fact that you want to be better. And you know what? They're not going to judge you harshly because they're going to see this person what? They're going to see this person wants to be better. And so we're going to have that good eye for each other in the way we had that good eye at Mount Sinai. And that's going to be the beginning of the fixing of the world and the receiving of the great light. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.